You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the conference that happened in Dublin, Ireland's future. Um, and we had some, uh, we had Francis Black giving us a good uh, overview of the history of Ireland's future, the organization, how apolitical it is, very much driven from grassroots level. And what it is doing is opening the doors on the conversation of a topic that is on some people's mind negatively and some people's mind positively, and that's our unity. And uh, we also had a chat with Andrew Clark, and Andrew comes from a union's background, and expressed some of his experiences. And then James Maloney also shared his thoughts with us in that show. But today I want to do a bit of a follow-up, and we're going to talk to Ben Collins. And Ben comes from a union's tradition in Northern Ireland, and has lived in Scotland. And uh, he also was, uh, when I read here from the Irish Times, he was uh, a former Tory government press officer, uh, and he's from East Belfast. But Ben has just published a book, and it's called Irish Unity. Now, it's hot off the presses, and I have to say that is because it's flying out the door to the extent that it needs to go into reprint. And it says, Irish unity, time to prepare. And uh, it is time to prepare. He says, growing up in the troubles, he was determined that he was not going to be forced into Irish unity by terrorist violence or the threat of it. And at that time, there was no space to think about a different future. But since then, there has been peace. And uh, the, however imperfect that might be, and that was brought about by the Good Friday Agreement. And the protection of that is something that I know Ben holds very close to his heart. Ben, thanks a million for taking the time and coming along for a chat. It's an honour to have you here. Uh, thank you, Austin. I'm really, really pleased to be here. I've, um, I've admired your your station. You're, you're, you're one of the um, you're one of the outlets I was very keen to get in touch with after um, I got my book out there. But you you beat me to it by contacting me. So I'm I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you. So a little bit about your upbringing and growing up in Belfast, because I will relate to you and a memory I have from when I was no more than about nine or ten. And I went up to Belfast and I was staying with my aunt on Skegenil Avenue. And um, there was a little guy up the road and I was playing with him all week. And Sunday came along and I went out to play and he wasn't allowed to play and all the parks were chained. And I could not make sense of it. So, yes. um, I guess as a child, children cannot make sense of chaos like that. No, I mean, I, yeah, I grew, I, I was born in the mid seventies. Um, and, uh, I grew up in East Belfast and I stayed in Belfast until I went off to university in Dundee in 94 at the time of the first IRA ceasefire. And the thing that really resonated for me was seeing the difference in Belfast between leaving at the end of August at the time of that first ceasefire and then coming back at Christmas and just feeling the different atmosphere, seeing the busyness of the Belfast city centre. Just, it just felt so different, but it was even simple things like you, you grew up and, um, you know, Dundee has come on leaps and bounds since I was there in the last uh, quarter century. Um, but even then it was just, it was so liberating. To get out, and I am very proud to be from Belfast, but it was so liberating to get away and just going from somewhere where you're used to seeing armoured, camouflaged Land Rovers and soldiers on the streets and armed police, as I did in Belfast, and then going to Dundee 
and then coming back at Christmas and seeing these same armored Land Rovers, and you suddenly realize, Craigie, that actually, that actually seems quite strange because you just, you adjusted to, to normality. Um, and, um, yeah, it, it is, it's a, it was a, it was a different environment. And I was just, I was very conscious, even simple things like whenever we first went to university, Dundee was full of people from, from, from Ireland, North and South, and that was great. But I remember the first few times we would go into the pub in, in Dundee. And if we talked about politics, about current affairs, it was instinctive. Sometimes we would, people would literally stop what they were saying and look over the shoulder, shoulder to see who was, who was listening because it was an instinctive thing. You growing up in Belfast, you wanted to know who was, who was listening to you. And I, I look back at that now and I'm just horrified is maybe too strong a word, but I'm just, you know, it's, it's, it's astounding in one way that we, 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 we lived through that. Now, of course, much worse things than that happened during the troubles, but, um, that was the environment that, that, that we lived within. And I remember having discussions at an early age. I mean, I have very fond memories of Bangor. Uh, in part as a kid, because so often whenever I was a kid, we just didn't feel it was safe to go out in Belfast. And for, you know, this is before social media, but we would have a ring round to the friends and say, Oh, you know, we don't think it's a good time to go into the center of Belfast tonight. We would either stay at home or we would go to places like Bangor because that was perceived to be a safer environment. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, um, I, I grew up, I went to, uh, uh, Campbell College. Uh, it was, uh, uh, a public school in East Belfast, all boys public school. And I was able to go to that because my dad was a vet, but he, as a sideline, him and his cousin ran a pig farm in, um, in, in, in Castlereagh Hills on the outskirts of Belfast. And so my first job at the age of six was mucking out big, pig pens. And as I say in the book, that taught me two things. One, it doesn't matter how often you wash, you can't get rid of the smell of pig manure for at least a week afterwards. And two, I didn't mind hard work and any job I've done since that has been downhill and it's been easier. So growing up in that environment, as you said, you were very conscious of your own surroundings in every respect. Yeah. But an awareness of anybody else's surroundings and what, excuse me, what they were experiencing was something that neither side was ever given any opportunity to experience. Yeah, I mean, I remember, I think it was the Opstall Commission when I was at school. I studied politics at school and um, along with uh, one other person, we were invited to take part in um, the Opstall Commission, which I think it was a Scandinavian politician who was having, who put together this commission um, and he'd gone to Belfast. Uh, he sadly passed now. He'd gone to Belfast and there were, there were school kids from all across Northern Ireland and we were asked to talk and share our experiences. And... Uh, Campbell College was very much, it was a, it was a, a, you know, it was a, it was a majority Protestant school. There were people from different faiths and none, but it was mostly uh, Protestant and, um, very much part of the Unionist tradition as well. Um, and it was just interesting hearing the experience of some of the kids from other schools that were there and they were talking about their experience and how they felt that they, the experience of interacting with, you know, the police and, uh, and the army as they were walking, walking to and from school. And then, um, you know, going off to university and, and, and mixing with kids in a way that just wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a conscious decision of me not to mix, but it was just, it was a very segregated society back then. And thankfully things have improved, but just meeting people from across Northern Ireland, across the island of Ireland, 
and realizing very quickly that we had so much in common. Now, I had always considered myself, I'd always had a strong sense of Irishness. That was just an instinctive thing for me. But initially it was that in addition to feeling um, British. But over time, my sense of Britishness just dissipated. And um, part of the reason for that was actually spending time in Britain. I just felt ever less British, but my sense of Irishness grew. And as you said, um, the Good Friday Agreement allowed me to look anew at what that Irishness meant to me and what I desired for the future. And um, in the, uh, on the basis of the Good Friday Agreement, I did develop this long-term aspiration for, for Irish unity, but it's really it's become an urgent necessity for me uh, following Brexit and the chaos that that has, that has brought to all parts of Ireland and indeed to Britain. I know one of the things that's often difficult to explain, and the same happens here as everywhere else, I think, that people put unionism and Protestantism as synonymous and Catholicism and nationalism as synonymous, and they are not. No, definitely not. And that concept, it's like people put being a Francophone as synonymous with Quebec separation or Anglophone, and it's not. It's, more, are, it's, it's much more complex than that. Yeah. Yeah. There are real deep identity issues that unfortunately these labels are then assigned to try to identify that identity. No, that's it. And I think that's right. I mean, even now, I mean, I don't mind. People can call me what they want and quite often they do. That's the wonders of social media. Um, and, um, but, uh, I would describe myself as, uh, uh, I'm Irish. I'm a liberal and I believe in, in Irish unity. Um, I think it, it, it's almost in a sort of like a post-nationalist um, uh, 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 context is the way that I see, see my, own, my own experience. But I think the beauty for me is that you don't have to be a particular religion. You don't have to play a particular sport. You don't have to speak a particular language and you don't have to have a particular view of the past and what was right or wrong to be in favour of Irish unity. This is about building as broad a coalition as possible for Irish unity that that I genuinely and heartfelt believe will be will be for the betterment of, of all citizens across the island of Ireland, no matter what, whether they're Irish, British or some other nationality. That that's the key thing for me. It's you know, it's not once I realised that I didn't have to be, as I said, I didn't have to have the sort of the uh, Daniel O'Connell um sense of uh, uh, of Irish nationalism, that really opened my eyes. And it was really um, it wasn't until I was in my 20s and I'd come back to Belfast the first time that somebody explained to me that the Irish trickler was green, white and orange. It wasn't green, white and gold. And the fact that that represents the two main traditions on the island of green representing nationalism, orange representing unionism with white representing peace between the two of them. And that was that's really idealistic and that's wonderful. But, you know, for so long, people on both sides and it was unfortunately it was binary in that way. Both sides of the divide referred to it as green, white, and gold. And similarly, um, if you or your listeners are ever in Belfast, I can highly recommend the 1798 Belfast walking tour, hearing about the United Irishmen and how it was about Protestant, Catholic, and the centre, and that it was those from a Presbyterian background like myself that had a really key role and wanted to have equality for all and wanted Catholics to have the right to vote because in many ways it was the established church, it was the Anglican church um, that had the right to vote and Presbyterians and Catholics equally were disenfranchised and they also those that were heavily involved in the United Irishmen were also heavily involved in making sure that slave ships never landed uh, in Belfast and that's something that you know 
we can all be we can all be proud of that Belfast. Yes, it had heavy industry, and it was a really key part of whatever you think of the British Empire. And I have very mixed feelings of it. But during that time, Belfast was uh, a real, you know, like Dublin and like Glasgow and Liverpool, was it was a, a, a source, an industrial engine of that. But we didn't have that involvement. We didn't profit from 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 the slave ships and from from the from slaves. And the fact you had people like Frederick Douglass coming to Belfast and and, and talking about that and that sense of enlightenment. I mean, I think those are extraordinary, and I think a lot of that resonates now. And um, uh, I think it's you know it's it's uh, it's it's really it's really relevant in many ways. It has always struck me that the core issue in division, in the North or be it in um, Middle East, be it anywhere, is the failure of one side to acknowledge the legitimacy of the other side's right to have a heritage. And that's well, that's if, it. Yeah, yeah Sorry, if each side, but if each side could just acknowledge the legitimacy yeah. of having a different point of view, it actually well, causes it, it evaporates the need to force your opinions on anybody. Well, that's it. I think, you know, I, I'm a great believer in, um, you know, we talk about the rich tapestry of diversity. You can have it, it's a separate discussion. It's one that, um, you know, whether you go back to the Ulster plantation of, you know, the King James VI of Scotland, King James I of, of England, and how Ulster was the most radical and rebellious of the four provinces of Ireland, arguably, and therefore he encouraged a lot of people from Scotland, England to settle in, in the in, in the nine county province of Ulster. But however we got to have the rich tapestry of diversity, I think for me, it's this, we've got to move past this sort of binary of argument and supremacy and trying to have one culture being victorious over the other. And we should celebrate all cultures. Now, I absolutely understand this isn't about um, appropriation of other cultures, but I think you can celebrate cultures and respect cultures if they're not your own and you can enjoy that um, in, 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 many, in many different ways and do that in, in a respectful in a respectful manner, and that's you know for me the the the, the planning for Irish unity has to incorporate that about respecting different cultures and uh, incorporating those, and that's why there has to be uh, you know safeguards uh, for that going forward. And I think one one particular way, having lived in Scotland and Wales for a number of years, I look at how the indigenous language there has been protected and is celebrated. And we don't have that in in Northern Ireland. And I think that's very sad. I don't speak Irish, but I don't feel threatened by those that do. And I think it's wonderful that we have an indigenous language and we should celebrate that. And that has to be a good thing. And I, I, I passionately believe that, that 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 is something that should be cherished. And I, you know, I hear people at times that will say, oh, the Irish language is a foreign language. It's not. It's been in existence on the island of Ireland longer than English has. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... I don't feel in any way threatened. It's, it's, it's something I would, you know, some people might quite rightly say I have difficulty enough with English, but it's something I aspire to, uh, you know, to to learn more. And as you'll know, so many of the place names and so many of the, the words that we use in Northern Ireland are, are of Irish origin anyway, even if we don't feel we're speaking that. And that's that's not something that we should fear. That's something that we should we, we should embrace. You know, no, my, my, my sense of Irishness isn't... Um, 
the same as anybody else's. And I, you know, you know, I, I'm not trying to impose my view of the world on anybody else. And I don't want others to impose their view on me. And we should, we should all be comfortable with that. Um, ben, your period of time with the Tory party press officer, that must have been interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, um, I, I, I joined the Conservative Party in 2001. It was after I had left uh, Belfast for the second time. I'd been a student in Dundee from 94 to 98. Come back to Belfast, I did a, an MBA and then a Master's in Political Communication. And then um, I had been working part-time for an international communications consultancy in Belfast. And then the, the Northern Ireland Assembly collapsed. My boss got made redundant. And I thought, there's no, you know, there just aren't jobs here. So I was moving back to Scotland and Northern Ireland politics was just very, was very oppressive at that time. And I was desperate to get involved in bread and butter politics. And I've always been pro-European, uh, socially liberal and believed in enterprise. And whenever I mean enterprise, I mean both private enterprise and social enterprise. And at that time, there was a leadership contest for the Conservative Party. And Ken Clark, who was pro-European and socially liberal, had the best chance. There was the most popular Tory in the country in the UK at the time. So I joined the Conservative Party in the hope and expectation that he would be leader and he would lead the party to be more centrist and, be, and to be more pro-European, to be socially liberal. And it would be, you know, this wonderful new, um, just like the, you know, um, like the progressive conservatives used to be back in the day um, under um under people like um, uh, Joe Clark and, um, you know, but prior to that here in Canada or there in Canada. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't win. And it was this guy, Ian Duncan Smith, that I'd never heard of. And it became ever more Eurosceptic. So over the course of the two years, I had been the most, what you would call in Canada, a red Tory. I had been the, the, the wettest of Tories in, in Scotland. And the Scottish Tories were much more left, left, left wing than the, than the English Tories were and much more pro-European. But after two years, I just um, I left because I just I, I didn't enjoy the Euroscepticism. But even during that two year period, I had attended the Scottish National Party conference in 2002 and they talked about fiscal autonomy. And just coming out of you'll know that, um, you know, you were you were told that it all had to be about the union. And that was the background that I've been brought up with within and just. The, the Good Friday Agreement and living in a different atmosphere in a different environment allowed me to develop my thinking. And it really appealed to me, the SNP talking about fiscal autonomy. And I thought, yes, if you're going to have a parliament, you should be able to rack, you should be able to raise and uh, raise your own taxes and spend it. And that, that creates a more mature uh, political environment rather than just spending the check that you're sent from elsewhere, whether that's from Ottawa and the provinces in, in, in Canada or from Westminster and Whitehall in London to Edinburgh, Cardiff or Belfast. Um, and so I left the Conservative Party in 2003. Um, I was working, I then started working for, um, again, I'd worked for, actually it was a Canadian, owned a consultancy for two years, never moved to to, uh, Canada, to, to Edinburgh. Um, it was called GPC that became, that was part of the Flashman Hillard Group, which still has a presence in, in Canada. Um, and I worked there for two years. And then whenever I left that, I moved in-house to the General Medical Council, which is the UK regulator for doctors. I couldn't be politically active, so it was an opportune time just for me to leave the party. But it wasn't until after I, I was there for two and a half years, whenever I moved back to Belfast after I got married in early 2006, um, I took up a job as a government press officer. And I wasn't a member of the Tory party then. It's just that that particular journalist combined those two things. So I was a, I was a, I was a government press officer for the UK government whenever Peter Hayne, who was a Labour Party 
cabinet minister whenever he was secretary of state at the time of the St Andrews Agreement, which was the negotiations, which was very interesting. Um, I'm looking back there at some of that time as well. Um, there was a lot going on in the north of Ireland. Yeah. So, you know, what you were starting to, when you said there was Euroscepticism, that that was creeping in very early on. And, and I always, I love the uh, Yes Prime Minister sequence that talks. talks. Yeah. Uh, that was, it was so, so apropos. But in relief, when you talk in terms of Irish unity, at the moment, what we're seeing is post-Brexit is you're seeing Scotland gaining towards independence. Yeah. Not a peep out of Wales at the moment. And you're seeing Ireland in the chaos that it's in. Um, do you see that the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is uh, in its final days? I think so. I mean, I was um, I was talking to somebody uh, in the Irish government who described it as um, the 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 UK is going through uh, um, a constitutional crisis, but they don't have the the language to actually describe that. I mean. I remember whenever the Scottish uh, referendum was first called, there was only about, and I, I mentioned all this in my, I go into all this in my book, there was um, the support for Scottish independence at the time the referendum was called was only about 28, 30%. Right. The UK government was adamant, because I know, because I'm friends with the guy, he was very involved with the Conservative Party, and the UK government's intention was they wanted to get a clear Two to one majority in favour of Scotland remaining in the UK to put this issue to bed for a generation. So they wanted to get a, they wanted to win sort of 66 to 33%. In the end, they won 55 to 45. And that was after it had actually swung within the last few weeks. It had swung in favour of, um, Scottish independence and then sort of rode back the last minute. Um, and I think in Wales, uh, whenever I worked in Wales, whenever I first started working in Wales, support for Welsh independence was about seven or eight percent. There have been opinion polls that have shown it up above 40%. And at the, recently it's been in the high 30s, which is unheard of because Wales is, you know, really heavily integrated east-west um, between Wales and, and England in, in, in economic terms. So that's that's very interesting itself. But, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, Brexit itself is arguably it's an English nationalist project. So I think and the opinion polls show that those in favour of Brexit would rather have Brexit than either keep Scotland in the UK and rather than keeping Northern Ireland in the UK. And opinion polls have consistently shown Northern Ireland is not a priority. And and even more concerning, those in favour of Brexit have been said if it was a choice between keeping Brexit or maintaining uh, peace in Northern Ireland, there's been at least one opinion poll that's shown they would rather have Brexit, which is just horrifying. So Ben, when did you decide to put pen to paper then to start writing about Irish unity? Um, I, I came up with the idea. I was standing in a pub in East Belfast in June or July 2012, just at, at the start of the London Olympics. So my desire for Irish unity long predates Brexit and it predates the Scottish referendum. But, uh, or sorry, I should say the first Scottish independence referendum, we might be heading towards the second one, depending on what the UK Supreme Court says over the next um, few days and weeks. But um, I... Uh, Whenever I started to think in the context of uh, the Good Friday Agreement and realizing that it was possible to envisage a pluralist, outward-looking United Ireland where you didn't have to be a particular religion and looking at the prosperity and the growth and the uh, outward 
socially liberal approach and how the Republic of Ireland was developing and the Celtic Tiger and all that sort of stuff, um, I thought, you know, I, w- I would like to put on paper, coming from a unionist background, somebody who's thought about this deeply for, you know, more than a decade, I wanted to put my thoughts down. Um, the fact that I was in jobs for um, from 2012 until May this year that would never have allowed me to publish anything was neither here nor there. Um, I wanted to get it done in writing, and um, I didn't want to be one of these people who got involved in these anonymous Twitter account Twitter wars. You know, I wanted to actually. I I come from a communications background. I thought, right, how can I? This is a very complex issue. How can I put my thoughts down in a rational way and try and set out how we can make our way through this? And then, you know, the Scottish independence referendum. I thought, gosh, this is really pulling at the. At the at, at the mooring the, the mooring ropes of the UK and then obviously the Brexit vote I thought it'd be close but I never thought people would actually vote for Brexit because there was no clear plan of what that would mean and now I mean I have I have close family members and I have close personal friends who all voted for Brexit and um, I don't think anyone can be anyone's happy with how it's turned out but in the context of that I thought right I have to do something to try and resolve this now I don't. I don't think I have all the answers. I don't think I alone can can, can solve this. But I just I wanted to, I, I really strongly felt I wanted to put my thoughts out there to say, you you don't have to believe in a particular view of the past to build a wide coalition for the future for for Irish unity. And we need to plan in advance of any border poll. That's the key message from from my perspective. A border poll may yield a result just like Brexit yielded a result, and we all know that you have to be careful what you wish for. So while a border poll may happen, the consequences on both sides of the border might be far from anybody anticipated. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think that's why you need to you need to plan in advance, and there has to be a clear plan, and we need to have these discussions now. And there's two reasons for that. One, we need to put a plan to the people, and yes, the Irish government should absolutely call a citizens' assembly, and it'll be very interesting whenever Leo Vradker who's currently the Tonishta, which is the sort of the equivalent of the Deputy Prime Minister in the coalition government. He is due to take over as Taoiseach uh, Prime Minister um, in um, December time. And it'll be interesting to see if he has more to say, because he, 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 he took part in that Ireland's Future event, which I think is great. But I think we need to have a plan that's a plan now, because, I mean, this UK government could collapse at any time. You know, it's arguable whether they actually have they technically have around an 80-seat majority, but we've already seen within the first month of Liz Truss taking over as UK, UK Prime Minister, she's had to do more U-turns than, I don't know, um, uh, a big U-turny thing, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, but I think um, I think that just shows that things could fall apart for them very quickly. We have seen that the uh, shadow... Labour Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Peter Kyle, has said they will set up the criteria for a border poll. Now, the Good Friday Agreement, as you know, says that the Secretary of State must call a border poll if the circumstances merit it, if the evidence you know, merits it. We don't know what the evidence, what the criteria will be. That does not preclude the Secretary of State, or, you know, which, would, which wouldn't happen without the UK government more widely agreeing it. You know, no Secretary of State is going to do this unilaterally. But that does not preclude that does not preclude the Secretary of State from deciding. Actually, we do not think the criteria may not have been met yet, but we think there are, there are grounds to test that. 
And that may be that if Scotland has voted for independence, the UK government may have said at that point, you know what, the game's up. Let's see if Northern Ireland wants to reunite with Ireland. And they may decide we can't get the Brexit deal that we want. Northern Ireland is too difficult. It's too complex. It's holding us back from our desired clean Brexit. So let's give the people a chance to go off to, you know, unify Ireland so that we can have our Brexit without that impediment. Um, but so on the one hand, it's about having a plan in place in advance of any vote. But secondly, and I like to that, I think if we can have an evidence-based factual discussion, hopefully that can assuage some of the fear and anxiety that is experienced both north and south of the border. And I mean, I don't personally take it for granted that people in the south will vote for um, Irish unity. I reference in my book how Cyprus in 2002, I think it was, under the um, Annan plan, Kofi Annan, the, the then Secretary General of the UN, um, was involved in discussions about reunification of Cyprus. Northern Cyprus, which, which is occupied by Turkey uh, and was less prosperous, voted in favour of reunification, whereas southern Cyprus, which wasn't occupied by Turkey and was more and was more prosperous, voted against. So, you know, you can't take this for granted oh. um, uh, for all kinds of reasons. But also, I think we, we need to move beyond... I'm an idealist. Of course, I want to reuni- reunify uh, the country. But I think it, there's a hard-headed reason why I think, for, for lots of different reasons, why we should have a United Ireland. And I think it's about setting those out, whether you're looking at health, you're looking at infrastructure, you're, you know, you're looking at the economy, uh, our place in the world, how identities are protected. For all those reasons, I think um, unity makes sense. But I think we've got to set that out and to try and deal with these concerns as much as we can in advance. Ben, we're going to have to wrap up. Uh, we've been yeah. we've had a good bit of time there. I do need to direct people to where they can get their hands on your book. Yes, uh, details are it's, it's available through uh, Book uh, Depository, the website. Uh, it's available through um, it should be available through Chapters Indigo uh, print on demand soon, but it's also available through Amazon and um, Lueth Press, L U A T H Press. We'll also have details of other places where it'll, it'll be available online. Well, thank yeah. you very much. And when it's out of print, it is available in soft copy for Kindle and other electronic yes. formats. Yes. So, yes. Uh, yeah, while you may have to wait for the hard copy, you can still get your hands on the soft copy. Ben, it's been a real pleasure, real pleasure meeting you and chatting with you. And thank you very much for taking the time. OK, thank you, Austin. All the best.